Well, folks, I don't know about you guys, but uh, after high school, wasn't that kind of a relief to graduate from high school, to get through that phase of your life? And, and were you like me and you thought, well, man, finally, I get out of high school, I can finally just uh, sit back and relax and enjoy life. I'm no more of having to crack the books or anymore. You remember that? Anybody else think that before me? Okay, but that's right, folks. Uh, believe it or not, at first I uh, found out that, uh, no, the learning process is going to continue on. Okay, and at first I was kind of bummed out about it. Okay, but then I've learned to appreciate that there's a lot of important things that you can learn, believe it or not, after high school. Anybody? Okay, that's right. Okay, and in fact, so much so that I've learned a massive amount of important things after high school. They're so important that I have to share them with you. Are you guys ready? These are very important lessons in life uh, that I've learned uh, after high school. Now, number one important lesson, folks, I hope you've already learned this, not the hard way. Uh, never, ever lick a steak knife. You know what I'm saying? It hurts even saying it. You know what I'm saying? Just don't do it, okay? Another one is if you ever find yourself behind another car in the drive through ATM where the person is actually using the Braille keypad on the machine there, run. Just put the car in reverse, get it out of there. What in the world are they using the Braille thing? Drive? Okay, I learned that one. Here's an important thing. Uh, you can tell a man that there are 400 billion stars and he'll believe you, but if you tell him the bench has wet paint, he has to touch it. Have you noticed that, right? That's an important thing, ladies, pay attention. You need to learn that uh, in life. Here's an important thing. Uh, a plastic surgeon's office is the only place where nobody gets offended when you pick your nose. I learned that after high school, believe it or not. Uh, Apparently, I need to go back. But anyway, that's right. Here's another one. When people apply deodorant, they will always have to use the exact same number of swipes on each arm. Have you noticed that? What is this, some hidden law? Okay, apparently you guys don't want to admit it, but it's true. Uh, here's one. People will never answer the phone on the first ring. They'll always do it on the second ring. What is that? Is that against the law? I don't know what's going on with that. But here's an important thing. The number of people watching you is directly proportionate to the stupidity of your action. Have you noticed that? You know what I'm saying? The dumber it is, the bigger the public the audience, okay? Here's an important thing I learned after high school. Marriage is a relationship in which one person's always right and the other one is a husband. <laughs> yes, learn that now, you young crumb snatchers. But that's right. <laughs> Here's an important thing I learned. People who keep running over a string a dozen times with their vacuum cleaner, then reach it down, pick it up, examine it, put it back down to give their vacuum one more chance, those people need help. You know what I'm saying? Just no wonder you're stressed out, all right? Now, this is really important, okay? Uh, uh, important thing in life that I've learned, okay? I don't care how a good idea it is, even if Kenny says it's a good idea, you're real funny, Kenny. Okay, whatever you don't do this. Never ever, under any circumstances, take a sleeping pill and a laxative on the same night, okay? Yeah, hopefully Al will be back next week, but uh, he's gonna be talking to you, Kenny, wherever you're at. But anyway, that's right. As you guys can see, there's a lot of important things in life you can learn, right? Okay, they're all over the place there. But uh, folks, if you were to ask me this morning, one of the most important things that I think all people around the world, especially even Christians should learn, uh, is this, to never, ever, ever, ever doubt that the Bible really came from God. Okay, and the reason why I say that, folks, is because as we've been seeing, that's no longer the case in our world, is it? Even in the church. Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. Due to a century or more of skepticism and false criticism towards the Bible and unfortunately, hypocritical behavior of Christians and how they treat the Bible, they never pick it up. Okay, people, even Christians in the church, are starting to doubt that the Bible really came from God. Therefore, to stave off this hypocrisy and criticism, uh, even in the church, folks, we're going to continue our study. That's right. Did the Bible really come from God? Yes. Okay, all four of you. Praise God. Five. Hey, give me six, give me seven. Okay, but anyway. And what we're doing, folks, is we're taking a look at the 10 lines of solid logical evidence showing us that, yes, the Bible really did come from God. You can use your brain. Don't check your brain at the door. Bring it in. God says, come, let us reason together, he says in the Bible. Okay, and so far we've seen the first line of the evidence is the Bible says so. And last time, the next two was that Jesus and the apostles say so. How many guys would say that if Jesus clearly taught that the Bible came from God, you might want to listen to him? Okay, number two, and if all the apostles were willing to die a horrible death for the Bible, that that means that it wasn't a lie. Nobody does that for a lie. Uh, it means it came from God, okay? And that's not all. The fourth line of logical evidence showing us the Bible really did come from God is, believe it or not, even history says so. Contrary to what the skeptic says, folks, history says clearly that the Bible really came from God. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God's. Let's listen to his story, okay? He's the author of history. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, 1 Corinthians was written to? Corinthians, you guys are sharp, man, this is awesome. Never look a steak knife and you always get Corinthians, you guys are doing great. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to read verses 1 through 11, history. How many of you guys would say history is important? Speaking of high school, how many of you guys loved history? 
Praise God, I get a pretty good response. Yeah, history's good stuff, okay. Well, that's good because the classic axiom in history is those who don't learn their history are doomed to repeat it. And we're gonna see that even in the scripture. We need to learn the history, hello, from the Bible. Okay, let's take a look at that passage there. 1 Corinthians 10, verses one through 11. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthian church. He says, for I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was who? Christ. Nevertheless, God, pay attention, man. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over what? Now, how many guys would say, ooh, ooh that's, a, that's an attention getter right there. Pay attention to what comes next, okay? Here's what he says. He says, now these things occurred as examples in the past, the Old Testament, history, to keep you and I from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Listen, he says, first of all, don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan reverie. Don't do that. He said, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. And he says, neither should we test the Lord as some of them did. And were killed by what? Snakes. And he says, oh, by the way, do not grumble as some of them did. And were killed by the destroying angel. How many guys would say that God's not pleased with that behavior? It says it right there in the Old Testament history. And that's why Paul says this. These things happened to them as what? Examples and were written down for who? For us, as warning for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Okay? So how do we know that the Bible really did come from God? Well, folks, I think it's pretty obvious. What did we just read? Apparently, the fourth line of evidence is that history says so, okay? What did we just read? Paul not only said that the Old Testament history was written down for us, okay, as examples, so we would not do what they did, i.e. sin against God. But here's the point. This admonition to pay attention to the Old Testament history and the New Testament history, i.e. the Bible, believe it or not, has been pretty much commonplace throughout man's history. Why? The last 2,000 years. Because the bulk of history believed the last 2,000 years that the Bible really did come from God and you might want to listen to what it says, okay? It's only been in recent years that people have become skeptical due to a century or more of false criticism uh, and skepticism. And the first proof that history, the last 2,000 years or so, really believed that the Bible came from God is their citations of it, okay? Is their citations of the Bible, okay? We're gonna take a look at just a few, just a few of early church history and their citations of just the New Testament, not the Old Testament, just the New Testament. And you tell me if they didn't really believe that this book came from God. Let's take a look at how many times they quoted the New Testament. Justin Martyr, he quoted it 333 times. Hippolytus, 1,378 times. How many guys are gonna name your next kid that? Yes, please do him a favor. Learn from Hippolytus. That's not cool. It's hard to spell even in kindergarten. What are you kidding? Okay, but anyway, 1,378 times. Irenaeus, 1,819 times. Clement of Alexandria, 2,406 times. Eusebius, 5,176 times he quoted it. Tertullian, uh, 7,258 times. Origen, 17,922 times. A grand total just between those guys of 36,289 times. Woo! Yes. And you might be thinking that, okay? Uh, what in the world does that got to do with anything? So what? whoop do you do So these guys quoted the New Testament so many times, what's the big deal? Well, stop and think about it. Put your thinking caps on this, uh, this morning. Why in the world would they quote it so much as a source of truth and authority unless they really believe that it carried the authority from God, right? It's common sense, okay? And, and besides, there's an interesting side effect from just these guys quoting the New Testament so many times. It, it even helps preserve the Bible. Listen to this. Sir David Dalrymple he was wondering about the dominance of scripture in the early writing, and somebody asked him this question. He said, suppose that the New Testament had been destroyed and every copy of it lost by the end of the third century. Could it have been collected together again just by the writings of the early church fathers of the second and third centuries? And he said, after a great deal of investigation, Dalrymple concluded, quote, that question roused my curiosity, and as I possessed all the existing works of the Father's early history of the second and third centuries, he says, I commenced to search, and up to this time, I have found the entire New Testament except for 11 verses. And folks, this is what's amazing. This is the amazing truth. Even if the entire New Testament was completely destroyed, we could still reconstruct it just from the quotations taken from early history. The Bible is the only book on the planet that you can do this with. History clearly believed that it came from God, okay? Now, this early history witness is extremely important because just like in a crime scene investigation, 
many guys like those detective shows, CSI and all that stuff, okay? All right, just like in a crime scene investigation, what kind of a witness do you want? You want the best witness, right? You want the earliest witness. You want the most first eye-hand account uh, of, of what's going on of the people who are right there on the scene, right? Well, this is what we have with the early history accounts. These people were right there on the scene when the biblical events were taking place or shortly thereafter. And so obviously, logically, what they have to say is much more logical, much, it bears much more weight than those people today of the skeptics who were 2,000 years removed, right? It's common sense. How, listen, put it today to another analogy. How, how much and how reliable of a witness would somebody be making a judgment on a car wreck, an accident, 2,000 years after the accident took place? Next to none. But that's what the skeptics are doing today with the Bible, okay? But what we see in our early history, these guys clearly believed that the Bible came from God. The second proof that history believed that the Bible came from God, okay, is shown by their canonicity of it, okay? Or in other words, how we got the Bible, how we got the books that we have. Uh, in the Bible. And this is important because the skeptic will usually state something like this. Well, all right, fine. Maybe you got me with that one. Okay, it's obvious that the early history believed that the Bible came from God. But how do we know that the books that we have in the Bible today are the actual ones that are supposed to be there? Huh? I mean, haven't you heard? There's a, there's a conspiracy going on. There's a lot of lost letters in the Bible that people are trying to keep from us. How many of you guys heard that one? Yeah, it's all over the place, especially, unfortunately, the History Channel, okay? which is a perversion, unfortunately, of the historical facts, okay? It's all over the place. And this is why it's important, guys, to understand the canonicity of the Bible, or in other words, why we have the books that we have and why they were chosen, okay? When you look at the facts, folks, you'll see there was absolutely no conspiracy going on at all, okay? The early history was extremely careful to get it right. They actually put into place a logical filter, listen, not so much determine, but to discover which books had the mark of God upon them and therefore qualified themselves to be in the Bible. Let's take a look at that filter that they set into place. There's nothing willy-nilly about the selection process. First of all, was the author of the book an apostle? Okay, why? Because that's a first eye-hand witness, right? That's somebody who was there with Jesus, right? So that's what you would want, right? So if it wasn't from apostle, eh, by and large, you're out of there. Okay, number two, does it agree with the rest of scripture? Well, why is that important? Because God is holy and he does not lie. If he says one thing over here and another thing over here, they're not gonna contradict themselves. He cannot lie. So it has to agree with the rest of the scripture. Number three, was it accepted by the early church, right? Those are, the, again, the ones clearest, uh, nearest to the scene of the crime, so to speak. So what they have to say about it uh, was clearly important, which also means, was it circulated by the early church, okay? They wouldn't circulate it if they didn't believe it came from God, right? And then also that means, uh, also, was it quoted by the early church? And boy, do we see uh, just a few of the guys that did that. They believed that. And finally, folks, here's the acid test. Did it come with the power of God? Okay, there was something radically different, folks, as you can see, when you just pick up on one hand the greatest novel uh, that man could ever write, you know, something from Ernest Hemingway or whatever, and then you pick up the book of Romans and it's radically different, right? Ernest Hemingway is cool as an author as the guy was, apparently, I don't know, I've never read any of his books, okay, but his name always comes up. Uh, uh, he, I don't think he's really gonna change your life if you were to, like, for instance, read Romans, right? Or any of the other uh, Bibles that we have books that we have in the Bible, okay? And so that was one of the acid tests. And so when you see this, folks, you can see with this logical filter they put into place, it really wasn't so much that they were actually determining which books were to be qualified to be in the Bible as it was they were discovering the ones that already had the mark of authenticity on that, okay? There's no conspiracy going on here and there's nothing willy-nilly about it. In fact, we know, listen, that the canon of the scripture, by and large to what we have today, okay, was pretty well set in the New Testament by 150 A.D., Okay, 150 AD. Now, that's important because this is well before Constantine. Okay, this is well before the birth of the Roman Catholic Church and the birth of popes and all that stuff. And that's important to know because invariably they, there's people out there that will say these entities, either Constantine or the Catholic Church, okay, uh, that they're the ones who are out there holding uh, out there from us these so-called lost books of the Bible. No, we just saw that the canon was pretty well established by 150 AD and the books that didn't make it were rejected for good logical reasons, okay? And yet the reason why we have such a rise of this conspiracy theory of these so-called lost books of the Bible is experiencing a revival because of another book out there that was made into a, a movie called The Da Vinci Code, right? How many of you guys heard of that? That's why you're getting this, this revival again of the so-called lost books of the Bible, okay? And the problem is once you look at the facts, and I'm gonna try to be nice, once you look at the facts, Dan Brown, the author of that, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Either he was a really, really, really bad researcher, 
okay? Or he was a flat-out liar. Because when you take a look at the facts, folks, uh, he is full of errors and inconsistency. For instance, one of the lies that he said was that Jesus had kids and he was actually married. And he cited, supposedly, he said there are thousands of manuscripts proving this, but people are just holding this back from us. Really? Don't think so, folks. Okay, uh, let's take a look at the real conspiracy. It's called Dan Brown, uh, not these supposed fragments. Let's take a look. You know, it's quite amazing how scholars and others insist on propagating something that has absolutely no support in reality. As an aside, take the popular idea that was popularized by Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code that Jesus married Mary Magdalene. There are even, and I've read them, there are even academics who assume that. They take it up. Well, let me tell you that there is not a single text in all the Gnostic writings that we have to record that tell us that Jesus married Mary Magdalene. Not a single text. And yet still, the myth is propagated. Hmm. Did you catch that? Not a single text. And yet they continue to preach it. Why? Because apparently they know the axiom, folks, in history. If you repeat a lie loud enough, long enough, and often enough, what happens? People will believe it. Even a book or movie called The Da Vinci Code, it's a lie. But you might be thinking, well, wait a second, Pastor Billy. Just recently, uh, they, they, they blasted out in the news and on CNN that they found this fragment, this fragment of piece of paper that said that Jesus had a wife. Anybody seen that yet? Just printing it out, reading it last night. <laughs> I had to adjust my notes for it. Okay, well, let's take a look at the facts. Okay, first of all, it's a fragment, a little tiny piece of paper. Okay, that's it. That's all it is, with some writing on it, okay? Does that mean it came from God? Does that mean it's part of the Bible? No, but even let's say that it was legit. The phrase that they're picking up on says this, and I quote, and Jesus said to them, my wife, and that was it. It was cut off. That's it. So that's the whole big thing that they're basing this off on, on a piece of scrap of paper that had those words recorded for us, which again, where's the legitimacy? We don't even know. But let's say it was even supposedly legit. That doesn't change anything. How many times in the New Testament, and the world's usually ignorant of this because they don't read the Bible, how many times in the Bible uh, does Jesus refer to you and I, the church, as his bride, his wife? So even if it was legitimate, that doesn't necessarily change anything, right? Okay, but the problem is most people, and even the secular scholars, uh, believe that this is a bunch of baloney, okay? Uh, even the secular guys who are examining this, first of all, said that this dates around maybe the 4th century, long after uh, the Gospels were written, okay? And they're assuming maybe it should tie in, possibly, and they're guessing at it, okay? And number two, uh, even they admit, listen, this quote doesn't prove anything definitive about Jesus, and I quote, and besides, faking antiquities is not uncommon. It's just a little piece of paper, right? That's it, okay? And, and that's why many people are already saying this thing is yet another long line of uh, uh, fakes and dupes trying to get people to denigrate Jesus, Okay, just like with the Da Vinci Code. It's a bunch of baloney, it's a lie. Okay, and so it is with these so-called lost books of the Bible that they keep regurgitating upon you and I, trying to get us to doubt the authenticity of the Bible we have today. When you look at the facts, folks, of these so-called lost books, they were never lost in the first place. They were rejected long ago, okay? And for good reason, okay? In fact, when you read them yourselves, if you ever take the time, you'll see that they reject themselves. They are so absolutely crazy that, 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 that they exclude themselves. You don't even have to do it. You don't even have to make the judgment. They prove that they don't belong in the Bible. Let me just give you a couple of those examples of the so-called lost books of the Bible. How about the lost book of Judas, the Judas Gospel? Listen to this. This was published in 2006, but it uh, has been known ever since AD 180 where it was rejected as the book of the Bible because amongst other things, it makes Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, out to be some sort of a hero. Is that supposed to be in the Bible? Don't think so, it's inconsistent. How about the supposed lost letter of Herod? This is hilarious. The person writing this letter actually forged this letter and we know they forged it because the Herod they mentioned at the time of Jesus' birth was not the Herod at the trial and crucifixion. He said they're one and the same, they're not. And that's why another researcher says, uh, hey listen, uh, oops, get your history right if you're gonna do a good bit of forgery, okay? So that got chucked out of there as well. No conspiracy. How about the Gospel of Thomas? How many of you guys heard that one? All right, well, this book actually tries to give us so-called secret details of Jesus' early life as a child and says, amongst other wild things, quote, as Jesus was playing one day, a child bumped into him and Jesus strikes him dead. Is that consistent with what we see? 
No, it, so it ejects itself. There's no conspiracy going on here. How about this? Uh, lost letters of the Acts of the Apostle Paul. This book says, amongst other things, Paul baptizes a lion, and later this lion saved him from the amphitheater. No, don't think so. How about the Proto-Evangelium of James? That's a big, giant word. It's got to be true, right? No. This book was actually written to perpetuate the false teaching of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Eh, wrong problem with that. Now, Jesus was born of a virgin, but the Bible clearly states that after Jesus, Joseph and Mary had children, okay? And even says that in the Bible, his brothers and sisters, okay? And so that's a lie. And they say that she was placed in the temple at the age of three and that angels fed her. No, that, that got rejected. And how about this, the supposed lost uh, Acts of John. This book states that John comes into an inn where there are bed bugs and, and, and in the bed. And John commands the bed bugs to get out of the bed and to get out of the bed. And that's right, they march in a line straight out of that room. Yep. Okay, somebody's got bed bugs, all right. I think they got bed bugs on the brain, okay. But you guys can see when you look at the facts, they, they try to bait and switches. Oh, lost books of the Bible. Folks, it's, it's crazy, okay? They're trying to bait us. The so-called lost books of the Bible were, listen, rubbish then, and guess what? They were rubbish today. They're still rubbish, okay? They were rejected a long time ago. They weren't lost. They keep resurrecting them, trying to cast doubt on you and I. But some will say, well, wait a second. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe there weren't any lost books of the Bible, but what about those books that people have in their Bible, like the Catholics? They have different books in there. They call them the Apocrypha, which means hidden writings. How come we don't have those in ours? Well, again, first of all, logically, they didn't make it into our Bible, the Protestant Bible, for the same reasons. They didn't make it and pass it through the logical filter, okay? Number two, the Jewish people never, ever, ever once quoted uh, the Apocrypha uh, in their Bible, and Jesus and the apostles never once quoted the Apocrypha themselves in the Bible, okay? And we also know it's hard on record. We know for the fact that the Catholic Church did this, purposely put these other books in the Bible, in their Bible, uh, to differentiate themselves from you and I, the Protestant, and listen to justify several of their false teachings, including praying for the dead and purgatory, okay? And for those of you who don't know, purgatory, first of all, appears nowhere in the Bible. They get it from one of these apocryphal books, okay? And purgatory is a false teaching where the Roman Catholic Church teaches, listen, that when we die, we go to some holding pen to purge purgatory, to listen, to purge our sins through fire and suffering, we do the work so that hopefully we can make it to heaven if then, even ever. And then you can actually pay the Catholic Church, even today, for them to say prayers for your loved one burning and suffering for their own sins in purgatory and shave off some time. Check it out for yourself. That's what they teach and they get it from these so-called books, okay? But if you know your Bible the Protestant Bible, the real Bible, hello, it's not only ludicrous, it's blasphemous. The Bible clearly says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, absent from the body is to be present with who? The Lord, which means as a Christian, when we die, praise God, we go straight to be with Jesus. We don't go to some holding pen to suffer for our sins, right? Purgatory is a slap in the face to the atonement of Jesus Christ because it says that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is not sufficient payment for all of our sins. That's blasphemy. That's why the books aren't included in our Bible. Besides, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I can trust anybody with all due respect who can't even get the Ten Commandments right. Okay, listen to this, folks. If you're not aware of this, let's take a look at our Ten Commandments in the Protestant Bible. Okay, hopefully you know these. Number one, you shall have no other gods before who? God, okay. Uh, number two, you shall not make for yourself a what? An idol in the form of anything. No idolatry. Number two, pay attention to that. Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Give God at least one day a week. Hello. Number five, honor your father and your mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Pay attention to that one. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Don't lie. Okay. And number 10, you shall not covet period, okay? Now, I'm not making this up, folks, and uh, check it out. These are the Catholic Ten Commandments, and I'm going to share with you an actual icon, okay, a picture of some little trinkets that they sell, okay? So you can see, I'm not making this up. This is from them. This is their version of the Ten Commandments that they promote. Number one, you shall have no other gods. Okay, that's fine. Number two, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Oops, that's number three. Where's number two? Number two was, you shall have no idols. Why would they take that out? Why would you take it out, period? 
Well, because if you know anything about the Catholic Church, that's big money and that's big religion. Because you got all the figurines, right? That you got to buy and that you have to have a priest to come and bless and that you pray to. That's idols. Took it out of there, okay? Then they say, keep the holy the Lord's day, honor the father and mother, thou shalt not kill. Unfortunate, because our say murder, murder and kill is two different things, believe it or not. And the new agers and animal uh, activists will take that and say, see, we shouldn't kill animals. You can't eat them, amongst other things. Okay, then they say, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shouldn't bear false witness against your neighbor, lie. And listen, because you gotta come up with 10, you took number two out, so how do you still end up with 10? Here's what they do. They take the 10th one and they split it into two. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife and you shall not cover your neighbor's goods. They took the 10th one, split it into two, so you can still come up with 10 by ripping out the second one on idolatry. Check it out yourself. It's a complete mockery of the scripture. And folks, I don't know about you, but I don't think I wanna trust anybody who can't even get that right in their so-called Bible, okay? Uh, I will stick with our Bible. It's much more reliable and honest, okay? The third proof that we know that history believed that the Bible came from God is by their creeds of it, okay? You tell me, folks, if history's greatest minds, greatest rulers, and greatest thinkers throughout pretty much the last 2,000 years do not give glowing opinions about the Bible and that it really came from God, then <laughs> you better stick to it, especially as a country, uh, America. Let's take a look. Who believed in the Bible? Well, W.E. Gladstone said, I've known 95 of the world's greatest men in my lifetime, and 87 of these were followers of what? The Bible. Napoleon even said, the Bible is no mere book, but a living creature with a power that conquers all that oppose it. Queen Victoria said, that book accounts for the supremacy of England. Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, said, the existence of the Bible as a book for the people is the greatest benefit which the human race has ever experienced. Every attempt to belittle it is a what? It's a crime against humanity. Charles Dickens said, the New Testament is the very best book that ever was or ever will be known in the world. Sir William Herschel said, all human discoveries seem to be made only for the purpose of confirming what? More and more strongly, the truths contained within the sacred scriptures. Okay, in other words, you're just catching up to what God's been saying all along. Even in science, we'll get to that eventually, Lord willing. Sir Isaac Newton said, there are more marks of, sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than any in profane history, all of history. The Bible has a a better academics there. Uh, Abraham Lincoln says, I believe the Bible is the best gift God's ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is commanded uh, to us through this book. George Washington, listen, said, it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God in the Bible, and yet we are still trying, aren't we? How's How's it working for you? Not too well. Uh, Daniel Webster said, if there's anything in my thoughts or style to commend to the credit, uh, the credit's due to my parents for instilling in me an early love of the scriptures. If we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we and our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. And that's happening right now. W.H. Seward said, the whole hope of human progress is suspended on the ever-growing influence of what? The Bible, and yet people are trying to take it away. Patrick Henry said the Bible's worth all other books that have ever even been printed on the planet. Okay, Ulysses S. Grant said the Bible is the sheet anchor for our liberties right here in America, folks. Horace Greeley said it's impossible to enslave mentally or socially a Bible-reading people. That's why they don't want you in it, because you won't, you'll, you'll stay enslaved. They'll, they'll take you back to that, okay? And the principles of the Bible are the groundwork for human freedom, Andrew Jackson said, that book, sir, is the rock on which our republic rests. And Robert E. Lee says, in all my perplexities and distresses, the Bible has never failed to give me light and strength. And finally, John Quincy Adams says, so great is my veneration for the Bible that the earlier my children begin to read it, the more confident will be my hope that they will prove to be useful citizens of their country, the United States of America, and respectable members of society. I have for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once every single year president of the united states how far we have fallen folks i don't know about you when you look at the facts throughout history the world's greatest minds the greatest rulers the greatest thinkers throughout all history apparently believe that the bible really did come from god am i getting that impression now listen you put all this together and this is what's absolutely ludicrous okay those who typically doubt the authenticity of the bible maybe you've confronted them assume that their doubting position has been commonplace throughout much of history right but that's not true, as we just saw. Okay, much of history believed, the bulk of man's history for the last 2,000 years believed that it came from God. Listen, therefore, logically, one who doubts the authority of the Bible, listen, is forced to say that their own private knowledge, their own private knowledge of the Bible is greater 
than all the greatest thinkers and scholars of the Bible for the last 2,000 years. And this is completely absurd, okay? When you take into account that those who doubt the authenticity of the Bible rarely, if ever, even read the Bible, let alone study it, right? And yet they speak with such great authority. Excuse me? People, this is why you can't have it both ways. You cannot agree with some of history's teachings and what history documents for us and then turn around and deny the authenticity of the Bible because the bulk of man's history for the last 2,000 years clearly present the Bible as the genuine word of God. But that's still not all. The fifth line of evidence showing us the Bible really came from God is that transmission standards say so. No other book on the planet can live up to the transmission standards of the Bible. Let's take a look at that verse we saw last week how the Bible came to be and why it's reliable. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, 18, 19, 20 through 21. Here's what the apostle Peter says. He says, listen, we didn't follow cleverly invented stories. We didn't make this up. It's not a book written by man when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were what? We're eyewitnesses of his majesty. We ourselves heard, hello, this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we got the word of the prophets made more certain. Jesus explained it to us, and you will do well to pay attention to it. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. No, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit. Now, if you were here last week, we saw this is the passage where Peter says and clarifies, unlike what the skeptic would charge, is that they did not just whip up some book, okay, like they want to say it, but they were actual eyewitnesses of God, of Jesus Christ on the planet. They saw, they heard, they were right there with him physically. And when they went about to preserve this eyewitness account for you and I, i.e. transmit it, the whole process was guided along by who? By God, by the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, and yet even when you share this, with the skeptic, they'll typically say something like this. Well, wait a second. Okay, fine. Well, may, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Maybe if what was originally spoken to the people in the Bible, the apostles, really did come from God. Okay, the problem is there's no guarantee that what we have today, 2,000 years removed, is totally accurate, right? And then they'll cite some sort of a scenario like this. They'll, they'll, they're, they're playing the game of speaking to people around a big circle, like with 20 people. And, and they start out with this, well, as we all know, that if you speak to somebody in the circle, the, the guy has a statement that he says right here, and he says it to the guy next to him, and then he says it to the next guy, and on and on, and so on and so forth, and it finally makes it to the last person in the, in the circle, and they share what they heard, and invariably the message is totally different than what was heard. See, this is absolute proof why we cannot trust the accuracy and the variability of the Bible in the last 2,000 years. No. Those people who actually make this statement, folks, are actually, it's a ridiculous assumption, and they're only showing their ignorance of how the Bible was preserved for you and I throughout history. The Bible alone has unique, awesome, amazing transmission standards. For instance, many people will take a look at the Old Testament, okay, especially the first five books of the Bible written by Moses called the Pentateuch, okay, and they'll say, well, wait a second. How in the world could Moses have known what went on in the Genesis account back in the Garden of Eden, back with the flood, before and after when he's so far removed from the events. How can we trust that what he wrote down for us is actually the events that took place? Well, folks, this is why it's important to read all of the Bible, including that part that unfortunately we skip over a lot of times, the genealogical record in the book of Genesis. You know that part uh, where it says, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, that begot so-and-so, and, -so, and we usually skip through that. No, no, no. Everything is there for a purpose, okay? When you start to do your homework and you break out a calculator and you start to add up these uh, charts of the years and the genealogies, some very interesting things begin to pop out, okay? These guys weren't just relaying the original events from the Garden of Eden, willy-nilly, hoping to get it right uh, through a circle. Mm -mm. Direct transmission standards. This is absolutely cool. Let's take a look at a chart here. And this is basic, as you can see, Adam starts over here. And then you're gonna have Noah here, okay? Uh, then you're gonna have the flood event here. And then post-flood, you're going to have Abraham over here, okay? And that's, of course, where Moses and Jewish people came from recording for us uh, in the Bible, okay? So now, all the patriarchs behind that line, okay, Adam's time, were alive and able to talk to Adam face-to-face -face about creation, right? So several guys could have a direct account, not just one guy, Adam, okay? Now, all the patriarchs behind this line were alive and able to talk to Noah face-to-face -face after the flood, if you add up all the years, okay? Several people could have got a direct hand account, uh, from Noah, not just one person. Now, all the patriarchs behind that line were still alive and able to talk to Shem, one of Noah's three sons, okay, uh, about the direct events of the flood. He was an actual flood survivor. Okay, now, put this all together. Adam knew Methuselah for 243 years. 
Okay, you're, maybe you're skeptical about the age uh, of, the, of the stuff. Wait till we get to the science section and we'll see that, believe it or not, with the right conditions, uh, with a, if you provide an atmosphere uh, over the earth, you can have longevity of life, largest. Do we see any large creatures in the fossil record? Yeah, anyway, we'll, we'll get to that eventually. But Adam knew Methuselah for 243 years. Okay, Methuselah, that's why it's important, is he was the one that says when he dies, the flood's gonna come. Okay, so he knew him for 243 years. How many guys would say you could have a few conversations with him in 243 years? Okay, that's right. All right, uh, Methuselah knew Noah, who was the survivor of the flood for 600 years. Okay, starting to overlap. And Noah had six living ancestors that could have personally known Adam. So not just Methuselah, but he could have got it from a whole bunch of other guys who personally knew him as well. And Noah was still alive, if you chart out the dates, 58 years after Abraham was born. Abraham could have, if he wanted to, still have talked to Noah, a direct survivor of the flood, okay, who was there before and after. In fact, all of 10 of Abraham's post-flood ancestors, even Noah, were still alive for his early life. So could talk to several different people uh, on top of that. And this is what's really cool. Noah's son, Shem, listen to this, this is cool, add up the dates, was still alive, not just for Abraham, but even Isaac and Jacob. You can see the last line there. A direct survivor of the flood if you add up the dates and don't skip over what the scripture has to say now you put it all together and here's the facts the first 2157 years of mankind's history is covered i.e transmitted by the lives of just three men so much for talking around the circle trying to get it right right that's what happens when you look at the facts okay moses did not just whoop up some story as you can see when you look at the facts the transmission of data from the beginning of man's history is not just possible uh, but it's completely possible accurately, and it could have been retrieved from first-hand accounts. Furthermore, you need to understand that when the people were writing down the Old Testament, they weren't just doing this willy-nilly. There was nothing arbitrarily about it, just hoping we don't make a mistake. Absolutely not. If you study Jewish history, you'll see that they followed strict uh, copying methods, okay, for the specific reason of having accurate transmission, consistent accurate transmission of the data, okay? Let me give you just a few of the rules that they followed, okay? Let's take a look at their copying methods. Number one, a synagogue roll must be written only by a Jewish person and on the skins of clean animals. Number two, the scrolls must be fastened together with strings taken from clean animals. Number three, every skin must contain, listen, a certain number of lines and columns equal throughout the entire codex. They literally had it down to a mathematical formula. They knew on each page, they would count, the, it was a mathematical formula. They, they would count the words all this way. It had to add up mathematically. They would count the words up this way mathematically. And if it was wrong, got, got rid of it. It was a mathematical formula. It's like an early form of a computer making sure that they got it right. Uh, the ink should be black, neither red, green, nor any other color, and prepared according to a definite recipe. No word or letter, not even a yod, that's a little hash mark, can be written from memory. You have to look at the codex before you. And finally, the copyist, and this isn't all of them, the copyist must sit in full Jewish dress, wash his whole body, not write the name of God without a pen newly dipped in ink, and even if a king should address him while writing that name, he must take no notice to him, and I believe that was actually culturally punishable by death back in that day. But absolutely not. They were not going to look up as they were copying the word of God. In fact, folks, as they checked it, because again, it was a mathematical early computer form, if you will, uh, a, a process. They checked the manuscripts and they were checked within 30 days. And if, even if it had, listen, one mistake, listen, they didn't just destroy it. They destroyed it by burning it. And then they even took the ashes and they buried them just to make sure that nobody could ever find the remains. Right? So again, this is a far cry from the common scenario. They just talked around in a circle and hopefully they got it. No. You're just showing your ignorance, on, with all due respect, of how it came to be. But that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, thanks for asking, AJ. Works well with my notes, okay? How is it transmitted to you and I? Is it reliable? Yes, it is. Let's take a look at just some of the common practices of a student and the rabbi. You know, Jesus, the disciples, disciplined learners, methetes, followed Rabbi Jesus. He did the same thing, okay? For instance, they had a common phrase back in that day. A good student back in those days was one who, quote, did not lose one drop. Like a cistern, a holding uh, a container, did not lose one drop. That was the uh, a phrase of a, how do you know you have a good disciple following you? They didn't lose one drop of your teachings. And the way that they did that back in the day, unfortunately, unlike you and I, okay, we have computers that do pretty much everything for us now. They memorized word for word, literally word for word, every single thing that they were doing when they're taught. You always see in the Bible that Jesus was walking with his disciples. They're always walking everywhere. It's, and it's because Bill, their car broke down. No, it's because that was the mode of transportation, but that's what he would do. The, the rabbi back in the day, he would walk, and as he's teaching, the disciples would follow behind him, and they would literally be listening to him, memorizing word for word, 
what he had taught. And it's the same thing that we see with Jesus uh, back in the Bible. Also, a rabbi back in the day would also purposely teach in parables and poetic form because it's easier for people to memorize and that's what you want to do. And that's the exact same methodology that Jesus used, right? How many guys can remember a story much better than some, you know, data, factual things? How many guys have got the title of every single one of my sermons memorized? We'll pray for you, Lion, later, and you too, but that's right. Okay, no, all right. But you know what? I could share a particular story about a truth, a biblical truth, and you'll remember that for the rest of your life, won't you? Typically, that, and, and Jesus used the same thing because it's there. He did it to make it easier for them to memorize every single word. Why? Because what was the goal? A good disciple did not lose one drop. They memorized literally word for word what he was teaching. So when they went down to write it, Pretty good accuracy. But that's not all. They had a backup plan. Okay, the, the apostles had the promise from Jesus that he was going to send them the Holy Spirit to remind them uh, to ensure the accuracy. This is what we see in the book of John. Okay, uh, verses four, uh, chapter 14, verse 25 through 26. All this Jesus said, I have spoken while still with you, the disciples, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will what? Remind you of everything I have said to you. Okay, so they even have a backup plan. And you put all this together, folks, Old Testament, New Testament, when you look at the facts, what you see, folks, is you have to keep in mind that these strict and reliable, accurate forms of transmission uh, standards is unique to the Bible alone, period. No other book on the planet has this kind of reliability when you uh, look at the facts. Most books of antiquity that the skeptics assume are reliable don't even come close to following these uh, kinds of standards, let alone have any, and yet they don't doubt that they're true. They take them at face value, and yet they continue to mock and scoff at the Bible, okay? And let me give you two examples as we're getting ready to close uh, of this, uh, this hypocrisy, okay? For instance, how about the reliability of the so-called transmission standards of the Jehovah's Witness Bible, right? They would say that their Bible is much more accurate than you and I, and we should listen to them, not to your so-called Baptist preacher, okay? Okay, well, let's just look at the facts like we just looked with the Old Testament, New Testament, and our Bible. Can we trust how their Bible was transmitted to them? I don't think so, but don't take my word for it. Uh, let's look at some former Jehovah's Witnesses showing how it came to be. Let's take a look. The Bible produced by the Jehovah's Witnesses, called the New World Translation, has caused quite a stir. We are prepared to document that Charles Russell believed he was the sole channel of communication between God and men. He even referred to himself as God's mouthpiece. I was surprised to find out many strange things about Pastor Russell when I did independent research on him. Here, in the finished mystery book, he taught that the churches of Christendom were started by ball-headed men with smoke on their brains. He thought that if a dog's head were shaped like a man's, the dog could think like a man. Uh, Johannes Graeber, or Grieber, was a former Roman Catholic priest. And uh, after getting married to a woman who was him herself a medium, he got the idea that he could translate the New Testament in a more accurate way if he would have some help from a spirit medium. When the occult background of Grieber was exposed by those outside the society, they stopped referring to him as a scholar. Interestingly, the evidence is that they had known about his occult involvement for nearly 30 years. This kind of deliberate cover-up is found throughout their history. My late husband, Bill Setnar, was at the Watchtower headquarters during the work on the New World Translation. Former President Fred Franz was mainly responsible for the translation work. He was neither a Hebrew nor a Greek scholar and only had two years of college. There were no scholars. I know because I knew them all personally. The so-called translation was written to reflect their own peculiar doctrines. It's a sham kind of scholarship. This could be called not a separate version of the Bible. In this respect, it's a perversion of the Bible. The only original Greek I knew was George Genghis of the Secretive Translation Committee, and he was no scholar, that's for sure, because he himself told me that before he came to Bethel, he was a short order cook in Columbus, Ohio. Huh. 
I don't know, maybe it's just me and Mike and we're hardliners and we just don't have an open mind. But I'm thinking I'm sticking to our version of the Bible over that one. How about you? Oh, oh, what's that? Let's recap that. Uh, That was inspired by a guy who was involved in the occult who believed that bald-headed men with smoke coming off their brains started the church and dogs could think like men and was compiled by a short-order cook uh, and other people who knew nothing about the biblical languages. Yeah, I'm going to listen to them. I don't think so. And it gets even worse, folks. If you know uh, anything about the so-called Jehovah's Witness Bible, they go on to literally delete, chop out, and insert passages and words in the Bible that aren't even there in the original just to make their false teachings sound plausible. That's not an accurate transmission, and I don't think it's reliable or trustworthy. It needs to go into the trash. But they're not the only ones, folks, uh, who are doing this. Believe it or not, these these guys come under the radar. I'm excited to get to share this and equip you guys with the truth about this. So are the Seventh-day Adventists, okay? They do the exact same thing with their perversion of the Bible called the Clear Word Bible. And the only thing that's clear about it is it's not trustworthy, okay? You thought the other one was bad? Check out this one. Here's where their transmission's came from. Let's take a look. During the mid-1800s, within a few years of each other, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Scientists, and Seventh-day Adventists were all presenting doctrines contrary to those held by traditional Bible believers. This central Adventist doctrine, which states that the judgment of believers' works will determine their salvation, is blatantly unbiblical and is not taught by any legitimate Christian denomination. Other heretical Adventist doctrines include the teaching that Christ's atonement for sins on the cross was incomplete, that Jesus Christ is Michael the Archangel, and that there is no hell. The late Seventh-day Adventist founder, Ellen G. White. Born on November 26, 1827 in Gorham, Maine, Ellen was hit in the head with a rock at the age of nine. She remained unconscious for three weeks, unable to attend school following the incident. Ellen's education ceased at the third grade level. Both her health and her emotions remained fragile as she grew older. She became Ellen White upon her marriage to another former Millerite believer, James White, in 1846. Because she claimed to have the spirit of prophecy, she came to be the visible, absolute authority figure for the initially small group of Adventist believers. Her writings grew to be 17 times as large as the entire Bible. Her followers were to reference these 5,000 articles, 49 books, plus 55,000 manuscript pages she claimed to write and regard them as being as inspired as a Bible. They have, however, made her more embarrassing writings unavailable, locking them securely away in the White Estate vault. Mrs. White, in a vision, also claimed to have traveled, complete with wings, to various planets which were full of inhabitants. She reported meeting Enoch, on a distant planet during one of her journeys. Other times, she saw angels using Golden Gate passes to go in and out of heaven. Some of her so-called visions reflected her own racist views. For example, she believed that certain races of people were the result of sexual relations between man and animal, which she referred to as an amalgamation. Despite the unbiblical nature of her visions, her followers continued to accept her as God's messenger and her writings as inspired as the Bible. They have their own version of the Bible known as the Clear Word Bible, which inserts the words and ideas of Ellen G. White directly into the biblical text. One can see the extent to which Seventh-day Adventists are prepared to go to support their prophetess, even to the manipulation of Scripture. Wow. And I'm supposed to listen to you when you come knocking at my door? I don't know, let's put all this together. Uh, Your transmission standards are this. Uh, They came from a false prophetess who denied uh, Orthodox Christian doctrine, who taught uh, false teachings, who believed that certain races today are a result of breeding done with animals, and then you have the audacity to insert those teachings in the Bible? I don't think so, folks. I think I'll stick to ours. And folks, as we close, this is why you cannot have it both ways. You cannot accept some books of antiquity that have little or no standard of reliable transmission like those amongst many and then turn around and deny the authenticity of the Bible. 
because the Bible's unique and amazing, reliable historical transmission standards clearly presented as the genuine word of God. And anything short of this is hypocrisy. And so it is with the skeptics of the Bible. They spout off bold claims like I used to do myself before God had mercy on me that the Bible cannot be trusted. It's a book full of errors. It's whooped up by men. And yet it is they who refuse to look at the evidence. And so be encouraged again today, Christian, you do not have to give in to the attacks of the skeptic. You don't have to give in to doubt. You don't have to give in to one iota criticism. What we hold in our hands is the actual genuine word of God, okay? And this is why we have to wake up, church, and realize the golden opportunity that God is giving to you and I, okay? Our world agrees with you and I that the world is getting worse. They see it too. And so because of that, they're full of questions like, why do I exist? Where did I come from? Where's all this evil coming from? Is it ever going to stop? Is there any hope? And it's high time that you and I, the church, not just go to these people and just say, the Bible came from God. We have to show them the Bible came from God. And the way that we do that, folks, it's simple. You just treat the Bible at least as good as your cell phone. Let's take a look. What if our Bible were just as important as our cell phone? We treated it like we couldn't live without it. When we forgot it, we went back to get it. We had lots of gadgets to keep us connected to it. We always had it close by in case of an emergency. We carried it around in our purses and pockets. We checked it throughout the day for new messages. We were constantly going over our minutes every month. We made sure our battery never ran low. I'll answer that. If we did that, folks, I think we'd not only experience personal revival ourselves, but I think our world would take us much more seriously when we confront them and say this book came from God and it really does have all the answers that you're looking for in life and that Jesus is real. Amen? Let's be that kind of church this year. Amen? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law, to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one, says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay, the, the, another commandment says, you shall not steal, okay? Uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, 
that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included. And that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you of your sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please, take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.